I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. I'm holding in my hands a rather lovely little book. Published by the Folio Society, it's called Impossible Journeys. It's a book of impossible journeys because it tells tales of attempted voyages to places that did not in fact exist. It's a collection of cartographical and historical cul-de-sacs. It tells us fables that were believed to be true. Like a modern day Chaucer, it features stories the friar's tale, the drunkard's tale, the cannibal's tale, and among them, the courtier's tale, with the subtitle, Sir Walter Raleigh Goes Upriver in Search of El Dorado. Sir Walter Raleigh is one of the most famous names of the Elizabethan era. An unusually tall, dark-haired and handsome man, Raleigh had a chequered career. His first mission for Elizabeth I was to Ireland, where he's still remembered as the perpetrator of the Smurwick Massacre, in which 600 people were killed. Nevertheless, or perhaps because of that, his rise under Elizabeth was swift. He had her favour. He might have been successful, but for his secret marriage to Bess Throckmorton, one of the Queen's maids of honour, which led to both husband and wife being sent to the Tower and then banished from court. And it's at this point that Raleigh went in search of El Dorado. The author of Impossible Journeys and my guest today is someone who has appeared on this podcast before, Matthew Lyons. He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and also the author of The Favourite, which explores the love affair between Elizabeth I and Walter Raleigh. Matthew and I discuss the lure of fame, the obsessive attraction of this city of untold wealth and the search for an earthly paradise. Matthew, it's always lovely to talk with you. So, many of us might know about this gallant knight, Walter Raleigh, going off in search of El Dorado. But when would he first have heard of it? What were the stories that were circulating about El Dorado by the time Walter Raleigh went there? Raleigh seems to have first heard about it around about 1586 when his men captured a conquistador called Pedro de Sarmiento and instead of essentially what most people would have done would be ransom him, Raleigh invited him home and wined and dined him and got these stories out of him that were coming out of South America and that clearly lit a fire under him. 
And then he and people like Thomas Harriot did a lot of work in the Spanish sources. And then you get this voyage in 1595, when essentially Riley's out of favour by that point. So he's trying to win back favour, and one of the ways he's seeking to do that is to seek this great legendary golden city of El Dorado. And the thing is, for the English, it's relatively new. For the Spanish, they're at the end of the cycle. And even by the 1570s, there are Spanish writers going, it's just a fantasy. It doesn't exist. There are still Spanish people looking for them, and Riley goes to find one of them because for him it's a kind of redemption as well it's the possibility of giving Elizabeth a great wealth and perhaps also a colony in South America and it's also there's a kind of political spin for him which is anti-Spanish will a weaken the Spanish financially if they take the gold and the Spanish don't and then it's also like a foothold in the Spanish Americas so there's all sorts of things for Raleigh that are exciting about it from the Spanish point of view you have the conquest of Mexico you have the conquest of Peru in the space of you know 10-12 years these two massive empires these two massive sources of wealth have come into Spanish hands and they're really just on the tip of North and South America in terms of their control and where they are on the land and so there's this massive land area and they're thinking what well, we've found these two great cities these great empires already what else is out there and El Dorado ultimately it's the name they give to the idea that there is at least another empire out there there are stories that when the Incan Empire fell a contingent of Incans went up into the hills and took a great deal of gold with them so that's tied into the myth it seems to actually come from Quito, which was an Incan city now in Colombia, around 1540. There are like three or four sources that place it there. It has different forms. For some people, it's a city. For some people, it's a lake, a valley. It's an incohate idea of wealth. And behind it is most certainly that kind of myth about the uh, Muisca people up in the Colombian highlands, who there was a ritual where their kind of king once a year would get covered in gold, and they'd go out onto a lake called Lake Guatavita, and there would be gifts to the spirits in the water, and he would dive in, and there would be a big kind of annual festival. And he is El Dorado, that's where that kind of part of the story comes in. That seems to be something that did actually happen, but it's before the Spanish get there, so it's always like in memory, and it's always distant and out of reach as an idea even for them. And then there are, astonishingly, three conquistador expeditions in the spring of 1539, one coming up from Quito, one coming down from the north, one coming over from the east, and they all arrive in the plains of what's now Colombia and find what is quite a wealthy people, the, the Muisca, and they do have quite a lot of gold. They don't mine it, they're trading people, so they're trading sort of emeralds for gold. But they do find Lake Guatavita, and that is probably actually where El Dorado, to the extent that there was an El Dorado, was. But because it wasn't as wealthy as the Spanish thought it was, this can't be El Dorado. El Dorado must be somewhere else. So there's a sense in some ways that, quite logically, having found two extraordinary empires, it's totally possible that there's another one. And El Dorado is this vanishing point, really. It's always over the horizon. It's never quite graspable, but always tantalisingly drawing you on. Yeah, I think that's the power of El Dorado. It's almost kind of like you feel it's taunting them in a way because it's something that they can't have. And in a sense, looping back to the myth of the Golden Man in Lake Guatavita, that is something that's before their time, so that's unreachable too. It's something quite atavistic, I think, about the search. You have that thing of the thing that you want most that you can't have. It's really powerful. And it's why, you know, why we're still talking about it now. There are other golden cities in the Americas that didn't get found. But my personal view is one of the reasons we still talk about El Dorado is Raleigh and his writing about it and his, for want of a better word, celebration of the idea. It seems to me that he was travelling, you know, halfway around the world on the basis of mere hearsay on rumour, as many perhaps people who'd looked for El Dorado had already done. 
But I wonder if there's a drive there that's also about the pursuit of glory and fame just as much as wealth. Yeah, I think so. One of the things I think that makes El Dorado and Raleigh such a powerful combination is that Raleigh is a great figure. He seems like a glorious exemplar of the Elizabethan Renaissance, but actually he had really no achievements. He's fantastic but insubstantial at the same time. In the way El Dorado is made for Raleigh, because it's this thing that ought to be amazing and is tantalising in itself, what is there exactly? So he's a perfect match for it. And so I think psychologically for him, well, it's glory, it's recovery of his name and status within the Elizabethan court. Questionably, how much status he had, that's question status with Elizabeth for sure. And yeah, personal glory. He did deny that kind of thing vociferously. But nevertheless, there is that thing, I could be king here, that kind of idea. I could look after this empire for Elizabeth. His discovery of Guiana is full of, oh, it's not about the gold, it's not about the gold, even though that is really why he's there. Clearly why he's there, because he's looking for El Dorado. It's so true that he has this disproportionate fame to his achievements. Extraordinary sort of posthumous reputation for things like introducing potatoes and tobacco to England, only he didn't, or putting his cloak over that plashy place so Elizabeth could cross and then didn't do that either, or founding Roanoke, he didn't actually go there, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why Eldorado is perfect. He goes in search of a golden city and doesn't find it. That's perfect, Riley, right there. But also he glosses it, and that's the crucial thing, I suppose. Yeah, but then he comes back and writes this extraordinary work all about how he didn't find it and how that was a great triumph. It's easy to be persuaded by him, I think, even though you can see through the bluster and the rhetoric. I think one of the things that's powerful about it is that he's a great writer, and the sense of him visiting this part of the world he's never been to, and very few Europeans have been to, and just the kind of explosion of information he's getting and trying to process it and trying to fit it into what he knows of what the world is like. So it's really interesting work on many levels. Okay, so we have him setting off and reaching the so-called New World in late March 1595. And you've mentioned that there are some push factors at the time. This person who's been a great favourite of Elizabeth I is no longer such a favourite And he's set off to the Americas for the first time. So even though we talk about him being associated with previous voyages, this is his first direct encounter. So let's think about why he goes and who's funding him to go and the sort of scale of the expedition. Essentially, he's going with the backing of quite a few people at court. Primarily, Robert Cecil is the key backer, certainly politically, the son of William Cecil, Little Burley. And uh, he goes with, with around about 60 men, four or five ships. One of the things that's in there in Discovery is Raleigh reports how much people doubted him, even at the point of leaving. They thought he went off to hide in Cornwall for like six months or whatever, or, or picked up bits of gold on the African coast and stuff. So there's a kind of level of disbelief belief about a that he would do that as a key courtier and as a man of his status and then just because he was broadly not trusted by almost everyone apart from Elizabeth people are resistant to the idea that he could a want to do that and b that he could achieve anything with it anyway so there's something very defensive about his approach even from the beginning he sets off in the spring of 95 it's very much a voyage into the unknown and perilous you have to say he did remarkably well to get there and back again And as you've said, the main source that we have for all of this is Raleigh himself. So it's this book that he published in a short form of its title as The Discovery of Guyana. 
tell us about this book and how perhaps it shapes the narrative we have, perhaps his purpose in writing might shape the narrative as well. Yeah, I think his purpose in writing it is partly, it's the thing you're talking about glory, it's all vainglory, you know, it's that I did this amazing thing, which is one of the key themes of the book, if you like, is I did this amazing thing and I saw these amazing things. I can do so much for you. It's directed at Elizabeth, really, a lot of it, even if it's normally directed at Cecil and Howard. It's a pitch to Elizabeth for obviously favour again, but also like money to go and either look for El Dorado or establish an empire or a foothold against the Spanish. So, it's a very interesting text and so about I don't know 20 years ago they found a manuscript copy of it in Lambeth Palace which has or seems to have like basically Cecil's edits on it and so the book as published has quite a lot of large claims about Raleigh himself and all the things he saw and discovered and you have in the manuscript you have edits where Cecil is just trying to rein it in so there's a thing where Raleigh says I know that this is the greatest river system in the world or whatever talking about the Orinoco and Cecil crosses out no and writes in you think it's the greatest river system in the world that kind of stuff and it's kind of there in what Raleigh's trying to write anyway but how do you make this experience explicable to the English mind to the western European world for your mindset which is a constant challenge in the thing itself. So you have references to like things like Mandeville's travels as a way of contextualising the wonders that he has seen. It's an extraordinary thing. I love Cecil's intervention because it really feels like it characterises both men. Here you have Walter Raleigh, the show-off, and there you've got Cecil, the prudent, the counsellor. It really is such a wonderful way of summing them both up. So we've got Raleigh landing in... Trinidad, as it now is, meeting Spanish settlers, and he's clearly in Spanish territory. And so he kind of needs a reason to attack and to make this great attempt. Does he find some sort of excuse to justify his behaviour? Yeah, I think, as with the Spanish as well, the sorts of people that went on these expeditions were not going to be foraging food in the forest. They wanted to take it from people. And so that they, apart from what they've taken up themselves, they do bits of hunting here and there and stuff. But there's always a negotiation going upriver with how are they going to get food? Do you attack the communities up the river? Do you parley with them? There's some evidence that essentially left one of his men behind as a kind of trade. The native chief's son, he came back to England and Raleigh left two men there. One gets caught by the Spanish and he left a deposition essentially saying that, no, it wasn't peaceful. We had to fight our way up some of the time. But I think the thing is, again, coming back to that sense of the unknown and how urgent it was, I don't think really any of the, certainly the English... Spanish had got used to it. The English had any sense of the scale of the Orinoco, you know, a thousand miles upriver. One of the things in Discovery is really talking about essentially coaxing his men along a couple of miles at a time and it's just around the next bend. Tomorrow we'll find it in a couple of days. And you do get a really strong sense, and I think it is real, of kind of Raleigh's leadership abilities and, for want of a better word, charisma. Because he does essentially take all his men upriver and gets them back down again which is some achievement. Then in, in classic Raleigh fashion, this isn't in the discovery, but then to try and get some money to show for the voyage, he went and attacked the Spanish settlement and lost a load of his men there. He doesn't talk about that, but that is something that happened afterwards. So that's very Raleigh. You have the, like brilliant leadership, great charismatic, powerful man, and then harebrained attack on the Spanish settlement. So it's very kind of Raleigh and like dichotomy of things. Brilliant, stupid. <laughs> know that the earliest condoms were made of animal guts and they were designed to be reused? Or that beans were once considered to be an aphrodisiac? Join me, Betwixt the Sheets, 
the History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit, where I, Kate Lister, ask the questions about the stuff we didn't learn in history lessons, or sex ed. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages, to Renaissance and early modern, right up to now. Listen and subscribe to Betwixt the Sheets now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. As you've said, he makes much of the difficulties of the conditions, the challenging situation they're in. How real was that challenge in terms of how difficult a journey was it really? Yeah, my feeling is reading it, did he really want to find El Dorado? It's almost like they get somewhere up the river and then they go back down again and they get to the borders of the land and come back down. So it's, did you really want to find it? He went without anyone to say any gold or knew anything about what gold looked like in ore form or within the rocks. They bought like a load of crap, he and his men, which I think in the discovery he blames on his men, but actually it's him as well. So yeah, did he believe it? We don't know, really. He may have thought, I can't push these men anymore. The conversation with Topiarari is in part Topiarari saying you can't go any further. But as if that would have stopped Riley if he wanted to, these guns men were not like, oh no, that's right, that would be a sensible thing to do, we'll go back. You can't really work out from the text why he didn't go on, other than you can intuit perhaps he had realised it was a fantasy and it didn't have to prove that it was a fantasy, perhaps, I don't know. In like the latter part of Discovery, you get him talking about mines, which is one of the things he comes back and tries to sell, and it's actually what he goes back in 1617, is to look for gold and silver mines, which actually were there. I'm not sure that he had proof of it, but in fact they were there. So it's a very kind of Raleigh enigma, that kind of, why didn't you? What stopped you? Is it like he's, in many respects, quite a rationalist in the way he tries to interpret what he hears? So did he not want to say that, oh, there was nothing here? He could, I believe, have turned into an anti-Spanish thing and Spanish are fools to think there was such a place, but he doesn't. He leaves it hanging. It's odd, he doesn't really push El Dorado as a goal after he comes back. It's all about the mines and about potential imperial conquest and anti-Spanish stuff. So when he goes back in 1617, it's not to find El Dorado, it's to find the mines. Very peculiar. That's interesting. Before we take him back, the other thing in this early visit is that he hears about those sort of fabulous fantastical people, you know, with heads not above their shoulders and this sort of thing, and reports this. Do you get the sense that he believes those reports? In some ways, it's quite good ethnographic practice. He reports what he's hearing without kind of judging it. He says, you read about the stuff in Mandeville? I don't know. An anthropologist called Neil Whitehead talks quite a lot of detail about but actually how accurate Riley is in his ethnography. And one of the things he talks about is the, the men with no heads. What he says is that it's a key symbolic trope in the region is for warriors to have faces painted on their chests. 
So you don't have to have much of a slip in translation for that to be interpreted by Raleigh as men with heads on their chests. So I don't know. I used to think he was like really just drunk with the wonder of it and with strangeness. There is that sense that's quite incantatory about the way he uses like place names and people names. Coming to it again, I think there's more nuance and scepticism there. Perhaps scepticism is too much, but it's more of a kind of willingness to judge what he's hearing than a gullibility, perhaps. I'm not sure. It's interesting. You can read it different ways. Surely a major part of it is that he is trying to say to those people who've given him vast sums of money to go and do this, that it was worth their while to invest, even though he's come back empty-handed. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And you think that's one of the reasons why Cecil is taking such a personal interest in Riley's report. It's worth saying, actually, that you think perhaps that Cecil is reading at it and going, come on, Walter, what are you talking about? But actually, like one of Riley's men, Lawrence Keems, goes to Guiana the next year, and Cecil is one of the investors. So there's continued interest in the possibilities of what Riley is selling, even though there's kind of scepticism about the details. Just in terms of the amount of money that's being invested, so I think, if I remember correctly, that Riley's voyage to Guyana to El Dorado cost like 60000 So Riley didn't do things by heart. He always wanted more. And the scale of everything was always like, in a very kind of El Dorado way, Riley was always about bigger, more, faster, further. That's a very kind of Rileyan kind of ideas. I've just bunged it into the National Archives currency converter. And it tells us in 2017, this was worth approximately 10 million £298,000. So it's vast amounts of money that people are putting into it. A lot of money. You can understand why the other courtiers were less than thrilled when he came back with nothing. But also, this is like brilliant bravado towards the end of the discovery, where it kind of switches into, well, it wasn't all about the gold. It was all about establishing Elizabeth's name. And he talks quite a lot about showing the native people's portraits of Elizabeth and saying how she'd freed the Northern Hemisphere from the Spanish. And so it turns into this kind of like, well, it was never about the money, which is on the face of it ludicrous. And it's hard to believe he thought he'd get away with it. So we fast forward to the new king, James VI of Scotland, becoming James I of England. And English foreign policy is, for a start, not with Raleigh. And anyway, he's pretty swiftly confined to the Tower for allegedly plotting James's overthrow. And it's only in, is it 1615, 1616, when Raleigh is in his 60s that he's given royal approval to head back to the Orinoco to see what he can find. Tell us what happened then. Ron is old, he's pretty poorly. He was in bad shape in 1595, he's in really poor shape now physically. So they sail over. Raleigh essentially stays at the coast. He stays on his ship and he sends his key sidekick Lawrence Keems upriver with Raleigh's son, Watt. And they head upriver. Raleigh's essentially sitting, waiting on the coast quite poorly, waiting for information to come down. And essentially they get up to where Riley had got to before, and they see a Spanish fort. And they are under strict instructions from James not to engage militarily with the Spanish. But of course, the Spanish are in the way. And essentially, they attack the uh, Spanish fort. Riley's son is shot almost immediately, and it's a disaster. And then Keems comes back down to Raleigh in his ship and tells Raleigh about the loss of his son, and Raleigh is distraught. He blames Keems, and Keems goes into his cabin and kills himself. And then Raleigh comes back to England, and there are suggestions that he might have thought about maybe going to live in France or somewhere, because clearly he was still under sentence of death, and should probably have made 
clear that when he left the tower, his death sentence wasn't removed. He asked Francis Bacon's advice, and Bacon said, no, it'll be fine, don't worry, which is terrible advice. So he comes back, there's the sentence of death hanging over him, he knows that his men have done exactly what they were told not to do by James, who's close allied to the Spanish at this point, and he's pretty much a broken man, I think it's probably fair to say. There's a really beautiful letter he wrote to his wife after the death of his son, where he says, I never knew what sorrow was till now. It's really very powerful. He comes back, and the Spanish ambassador is wanting his head, and essentially James gives it to him. It is a tragic postscript. Did the myth of El Dorado die with Raleigh? No, it's curious. You get expeditions really through the 17th century into the 18th century. There's a Flemish expedition in the 1660s which does what Raleigh and Berrio failed to do, which is go beyond up to the source of the Crony, which is the river where the mines were, which is where they said El Dorado was. And Flemish explorer goes there and, and discovers, hey, nothing there. It's partly fueled by maps because maps are quite stubborn in terms of information. Once something gets on a map, it doesn't really come off. So, I mean, Raleigh's version of El Dorado is that there's Lake Parima and there's this city of El Dorado called Manoa. And those two things are on, like, loads of maps. Up until the 1840s, there's maps with those two things on it. But even though Alexander von Humboldt had done a lot of work, worked where Riley had been and what places he was talking about, and so he had worked out kind of around about the turn of the 19th century that he'd pinpointed where Raleigh was talking about and that there was nothing there. So the lake was essentially like a plain that flooded in particular seasons, a confluence of two rivers, and so this big lake opened up and then proceeded again. And then German English explorer in the 1830s called Schomburg, he went there essentially to prove to himself that there was nothing there. He edited a version of the discovery. He was very kind of, not to say he's a fan of Raleigh, but he's very invested in Raleigh. But he goes to the place where Prima and Manoa ought to have been just to see for himself that it wasn't there. That's when it dies. We talked a bit earlier about the Lake Guatavita and the myth about the Golden Man. That's the kind of another current of El Dorado that's ongoing. So there are attempts to drain the lake to look for the golden treasure that was in the lake from the offerings. There were attempts from maybe as early as 1540, but certainly through into the 18th, 19th century. In turn of the 20th century, there was a kind of biggish expedition that got close to almost entirely draining the lake. And they found, I think, 60-odd items, which they auctioned at Sotheby's, as people tended to do in those days. Even though like, El Dorado dies, there's still like ripples of it going on in different ways for centuries. We know it's a resonant thing. It is the thing you can't have. It's the thing you can't have that you think is there or that might be there. Well, thank you very much for talking to us about El Dorado. And I suppose we can all have a think about what our own personal El Dorado is. But also to think about... This extraordinary character, he was Walter Raleigh, who I still feel like I'm trying to get my head around, but it's this combination of charisma and brilliance and fantastic leadership, and then ultimately the kind of emperor's new clothes. <laughs> There's nothing to show. I think that's why he's more compelling than many of his more successful contemporaries, is that you feel his charisma even now, but what is it based on other than just force of personality? It's very peculiar. And as I said earlier, El Dorado is perfect for him because it's something that he couldn't find, you couldn't prove, that didn't exist, or that it's just a metaphor. And Raleigh's like a metaphor for, I don't know, ambition, but also the Renaissance man. Chemist, poet, scholar, historian courtier he's never really nails any one of them but he could have been great in all these different things he's never there and that's very like El Dorado I think and 
I think also something of that feels very modern. He's searching for fame. He's famous for being famous. There's a superficiality and a lack of substance to it, but everyone knows his name. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.